The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I know there's there's some new um, first-time visitors to IMC, so welcome. And I was thinking about um, offering a guided meditation this morning. Sometimes in the in the morning sitting, we have a guided meditation. But then I thought, um, there's something better than a guided meditation: <laughs> silence. <laughs> and one of the um, interesting things to me about silence in in our tradition, our form of meditation is silence is not really the absence of sound, you know, the, um, a certain kind of silence. But I think for, for our practice, when we meditate, silence is more about our relationship with the sound, you know. So um, there's always sound. Either there's sound outside, or there's sound in here, or here, or, you know, there's always sound. Um, and if we um, uh, struggle against the sound or fight it or have a running commentary about it, or um, that's one way of relating to it. But there's another way of relating to the sounds, just to leave them alone, to leave everything alone. You know, so then I'm not in conflict with the sound of the cars or the, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's like everything is um, just as it is. Everything is there. And we're kind of harmonizing with the various sounds, the various movements of the mind. And that can bring um, a great peace, a great sense of ease. Wow, it's okay. I can be with things as they are. You know, um, I may have some idea of, okay, this is okay to meditate here, but only in a, you know, maybe it'd be better in the mountains with snow silently falling and a fire in the, (laughs) that'd be nice, (laughs) wood-burning stove and the, you know, and that might be nice, but um, I think that for meditation practice to be um, its most useful, most valuable in our life, it's something that we have with us all the time. We don't have to go to a, a particular special place. Special places are wonderful. But um, if the special place is inside of us, then whatever we see, whatever we meet, whatever conditions in our life arise, that's the place where we practice. That's the place where we can discover this silent mind, this peaceful mind. Um, So that's a little bit of an intro to um, uh, a poem. (laughs) And this is a a poem that um, I first heard a number of years ago. And I liked it, but I didn't feel like I really understood it. And I'm not going to be so bold as to say I understand it now, but I have a different understanding of it now. 
And um, I feel like it's in some way a comment on the relationship between meditation practice and our everyday life. So it's called Tree by Jane Hirschfield. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. That great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. Already, the first branch tips brush at the window. Softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. Maybe I'll read it again. It's called Tree. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. Already, the first branch tips brush at the window. Softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. I think we can see this as a metaphor for practice, for meditation practice, maybe you could say for spiritual practice, where um, the tree, you know, I love this image of a tree. Sometimes I think when we sit, it's like we go, we have roots that kind of go into the ground. And then we, we, just the way a tree just grows into the sky, we have this uprightness. And, you know, for me, a tree is a symbol of life. It's a symbol of a kind of um, equanimity. You know, the tree is there in all the seasons. It's just, it's just rooted, it's just calm, is there, is providing shade, is providing, um, you know, um, you know it's, it's life-giving, the tree. And, and, this, and the, the tree has a stability, you know, the tree, the tree doesn't move. It's there, it's solid, it's stable. And through our meditation practice, that's one of the qualities we're cultivating. Sometimes it's called in, in the, the ancient language of the Buddha, it's called samadhi, to cultivate samadhi, to cultivate stillness. Um, I think there aren't many places in our life that... Um, that we're really asked to cultivate a kind of stillness. You know, we're usually in, 
in movement, in relationship, and it's wonderful. You know. But maybe that movement and that relationship and that engagement um, is supported by being balanced with stillness. Maybe, you know, every day or you know, so at some point in our, in, our, in our everyday life to return to, um, you know, the, the plain white paper. You know, when you have an empty piece of paper, it's, anything can be created on it. You know, when our paper is so full of stuff, sometimes I make notes of things and it's just scribbles everywhere. And then it's like, what, am I, what did I write? What, am I, what, am I, you know, what is that about? And then I remember, oh, I can take another piece of plain white, beautiful, empty paper and start fresh, you know. And so meditation is this opportunity to start fresh. This, um, uh, another, another image that uh, we often have for meditation is meditation is like taking care of the ground. You know, the ground, the soil is where everything comes from. But usually we don't give much attention to the ground. The ground is just dirt, right? You know, there's nothing there. But if we're gardening and we want to cultivate something, we give a lot of attention to the ground. We work the soil, we, we make sure it has sun and water and nutrients. And, and then we ha- uh, bring patience, you know, a lot of patience and um, some understanding about the season of things. You know, um, right now we're in the season of winter, you know, such as it is in Northern California. But if it, you know, it, I, I love the kind of, the, the way the light is different, the way um, I was driving here in the morning um, and also last night coming back home on 280 and there was so much fog, you know, this winter fog. I was, I was a little bit stunned at how, how thick the fog was last night. And um, this also is in a way a metaphor for our practice, like um, finding our way in the dark, finding our way through the fog where we don't necessarily know what's in front of us. Um, and so we have to bring a lot of trust to just keep going a little, little, one more step, one more, you know, a little bit more. And the amazing thing about practice is as we go forward, the fog parts just that much. You know, you can see just a little bit more and then we go a little bit more and we can see a little bit more. And, um, so, so something about this finding our way in the dark and the season of winter is um, a time of rest, you know, a time of going within, a time of um, sort of hibernating and renewing ourselves. And um, so anyway, so we have the tree, the tree, maybe the tree loses its leaves and, you know, it's, is, is, is sort of going into shifting into this other way of being. 
end. Um, it can look like things have, uh, you know, are, you know, have lost their vitality or have dried out or something, but it's a cycle. You know, it's going through this cycle. And so, so in this poem, uh, Jane Hirschfield talks about the tree as this great calm being, this great calm being. And in, in meditation practice, little by little, we are um, deepening into this calmness, deepening into this stillness. Um, we, we may not notice it <laughs> right away, because when we sit down to meditate, what, often, what we often notice is how busy our minds are and how much they're moving. But we're only able to notice that movement from a place of stillness. So it means there is stillness. If we're noticing things are moving, the mind is, is unruly, there's thoughts, there's images, there's ideas, there's uh, all these feelings. What notices that? You know, what can be aware of that? That's the stillness. That's the still, silent, knowing mind, this awareness. So little by little, we cultivate um, stillness and samadhi and this ability, ability to just simply be with our experience, be with the feeling of breathing. Um, so maybe this sort of stillness and samadhi is like this tree and I think when we first come to practice, we, 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 maybe we like the idea of, of developing the stillness, developing the samadhi, but we like it over there. <laughs> we, plant it, we plant this tree in the corner, far away from my house, with my stuff, <laughs> just the way I like it, <laughs> and my, my rituals, my routines, my, you know, where um, things are the way I want them to be, you know. And, um, and then we have our practice, and it's over there, and it looks nice. So we see other trees, and we think, wow, that's a nice-looking tree. And maybe I can have a tree like that one day. And, um, and the poet here is saying, what happens when we plant this tree right next to our house? right in the middle of our life, you know. Um, and I think this is getting at this relationship between meditation practice and samadhi in our everyday life. If the tree is um, over there, that's okay. Maybe we're cultivating something that's nice, that's helpful, but it doesn't have that much impact on how I'm living on my everyday life. It's something that I go and do. Yeah, I go to IMC or I do that once a week. Or That's okay. That's nice. Listen to a talk. Um, but little by little, you know, we might find that that tree is getting closer <laughs> and closer and closer and closer and closer. And when that tree comes into our house, comes into our life, then it starts to um, brush at the window. You know, it starts to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, um, 
you're living in this way and you're doing this, and then you're also cultivating this practice, this tree over here. And um, it doesn't, you know, there's, there's something that's a little bit, there's a little bit of a disconnection, you know, so we start to see that um, the ways that our mindfulness practice, our awareness practice, this great calm, stillness, growing sense of wisdom and compassion starts to um, encroach upon our life and affect our life. And, um, and, and, and that's good. I think that's a good thing. But that's also can be an uncomfortable thing. You know, it starts to rattle us a little bit, rattle, rattle us out of our, our usual habits, our usual preoccupations. I remember hearing this, um, this saying that one of the roles of a Dharma teacher, you know, maybe this is of any kind of teacher, is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> you know, so in our practice... That was stolen from a Christian writer. A <laughs> so it's a, spir- it's, a, it's a spiritual truth. It's a spir- and, um, but I love that, you know, and this idea of where in my practice do I need comfort? Is there some affliction? Is there some difficulty? And where in my practice might I be a little bit too comfortable, you know? And um, that tree comes in and starts rattling the bookshelves or starts, you know, softly, calmly taps, taps at our life. From, oh yeah, there's more. There's more to life than just my own self-centered preoccupations. You know, and there's something vast and wide um, that we tap into. Maybe uh, one of the ways of tapping into it is through meditation. It starts to shift our perspective a little bit. Um, and um, so, and so, this idea of what practice is, what meditation is, maybe starts to expand. It starts to transform. That meditation practice isn't just something that I do on the cushion. Follow the breath, get calm, relax. I mean, good. It's all good stuff. But there's this other way that the, the contents of my whole life are... Um, you know, are, are, are actually within this samadhi, within this meditation. And so, um, and maybe that's what's transformative about practice, to little by little let this tree, you know, um, into the heart of our, into the heart of our life and let it teach us, you know, and what is it to, um, you know, we'll still have the messy books and the kitchen and the this and the that, but what is it that that's not 
I'm not in conflict with that, or that's not something that's encroaching on my calm, but I can embrace all of that and I can widen to include all of the different parts of my life into my practice. Um, and, th- and, and that they too are expressing the Dharma. They too are expressing the truth of how things are. And, um, you know, there's a beauty in messiness. We have some idea of things should be a certain way, but um, I think one of the gifts of mindfulness and the gifts of awareness is it helps us to see the beauty in how things are, how things are as they are. Um, I used to do this practice of drawing and we would have models come in, you know, and um, one person would model for like 10 minutes and then everybody would draw her or him. And, um, and then the timer would go off and then we kind of look at each other's drawings and then the next person would, would model and just kind of taking a, you know, just wearing the ordinary clothes and just taking a pose. And um, what I uh, was a little bit surprised to discover was that in, in the looking at someone, in this, look, this, this cultivating this, this um, ability to look at someone for a continuous amount of time, you know, and really trying to see them as they are, and, you know, and, and drawing. But in, in that looking, in that seeing, each person became beautiful. You know, it was amazing. It was really amazing. It was like the beauty, the inner light of each person. Just, it was like, wow, was that always there? You know, I didn't, you kind of nice people and, you know, but, you know, there's something in that um, willingness to meet life on its own terms rather than forcing what I'm seeing to fit into my idea of how it should be. And so when you're drawing some, someone, and you, you're, my intention was to, to really ex- capture and express some, something of the essence of this person. So I had to really look, really take them in. And in doing that, it was, it was amazing. It's, you know, it's, so this is the gift of, of giving others, giving ourselves this form of attention, this form of awareness. Um, it almost like it blesses each, each thing, each thing we see. And as we look in this way, we become more aligned with what's true. You know, so... Um, We would do this this kind of dasan, you know, this drawing party, with um, my my wife's uh, old art teacher. It was like a lot of her friends from art school, and Hoshi Sensei, this uh, kind of retired art teacher, and you know, this great shock of white hair, and you know, he's one of the few people who, you know, he still smokes, but it's totally. Right, <laughs> so 
he looks so good smoking. What? <laughs> certain kind of cigarette. This, uh, but just to watch him going outside and standing in the rain, you know, and having his cigarette, you think, wow, okay, that's why people smoked. <laughs> and I'm not, I don't like smoke at all. And, uh, and, but, it, you know, he's from, I think he's 84 now. And, um, you know, so from a, a different kind of generation and a different way of, you know, the fact that he still lives exactly the way he lived in 1955. <laughs> um, but I asked him once, I said, Hoshi Sensei, when you look at the model, what do you see? And, um, just, just to, to give a little bit of context, you know, so he's the art teacher, right? But he doesn't teach. He just does his art alongside everybody else. And, very, you know, maybe he might say, oh, I like that or, or something, but very little. I mean, he doesn't give any instruction. And so, but he'll answer questions, you know. So I was trying to think of, so I asked him, when, you, when, you, when you're looking at the model, what do you see? He said, I don't see a model. That's all he said. I don't see a model. And it's, you know, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful Zen answer, you know, that there is no model. There's, when, when we're really looking, you know, if we're looking at a person or something, where there's a way of giving this kind of pure, bare attention that all I see is light and color and shadow and form and lines. And, and I realized when I could see in that way, to draw something becomes effortless, you know, to kind of uh, capture that likeness. Because what was getting in the way was my ideas. Oh, this is a person who has this, and it's this, and it's this. And, and the, the idea of drawing a person is, is a little bit of an intermediary, you know. And if you let go of that idea, and to just see in this pure way, and, and somehow translate that into the pencil, into the paper, and then it's like, wow, there's this flow. And um, so it was like, oh, we can kind of shift into this way of being. This form of art, at least for me, became like a meditation. You know, it was like there was no me, there was no model. There was just this flow, this energy, this, this being in the moment, and just pure seeing. Um, and then from that, something original and sort of um, spontaneous could arise on the paper. It had life to it. It was like, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, it, was, it wasn't being planned out. It was just something emerged from the moment. Um, and so I think it, meditation can be like that. You know, we may have some idea of what, 
we want to happen, what's supposed to happen, but to be willing to sit in the fog, you know, to be willing to sit where we don't know, we can't see the future, we don't know what's in front of us. Um, but we, what we do know is there's this mood right now. There's this f- kind of winter light, you know, and there's this intention to open and to see what's there in a kind of simple way, in a pure way. And then something will happen. Something will emerge out of the moment. And um, the wonderful um, thing about this way of practicing, this way of being, is that we, um, it, it makes space for us to be delighted. It makes space for us to be surprised. You know, if I think I know, I know what's blah, 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 the right thing, I know what's going to happen. Um, that's a great recipe for not wanting to meditate. Because if I think I know what's going to happen, well, why do I even need to do it? I know what's going to happen, right? But if we go into it with this idea of um, curiosity and wonder and mystery and this willingness to just open and take the next step, you know, just the next step. Um, Often when I give uh, a guided meditation on mindfulness of breathing, which is one of our practices here, I never say, just follow your breath for the next 30 minutes. I mean, that's, that's recipe for disaster. I mean, who can do that? We say, can we be with the next in-breath? Just to be with one in-breath. Just to be with one out-breath. Because that's all there is when we're meditating and we're, we're practicing this beautiful practice of mindfulness of breathing We're just with this breath. All there is is this breath. All there is is this moment. We just take one step. And we just take the next step. So, um, well, I hope that was okay with a lot of different images and metaphors. There's a tree, there's the fog, there's... <laughs> but... Um, I know, the w- I think the winter solstice is coming up. If it hasn't already, it's... Not yet, not yet. The 21st. 21st, okay. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I think that the, sol- the winter solstice and this, this um, sort of experience of darkness and light are wonderful metaphors for, I mean, they're not just metaphors, right? We, we, we're, we're, we're living in them, but they're, they're symbols of practice as well. And um, I think it was Carl Jung who said, we don't become enlightened by imagining figures of light. You know, um, we become enlightened by making, by going into the darkness, you know, and making the darkness conscious, 
making the darkness visible. You know, so that, that's where our depth is in the darkness. You know, this, this winter, you know, this time of rest, time of staying, staying inside. That for me is this wonderful um, side of practice of this stillness, this samadhi, this, you know, this willingness to go inside. And, and from the darkness, from the winter, um, something wonderful from this ground. You know, the ground is dark, is damp, is cold. You know, but from this ground, something wonderful grows that nourishes us, that supports us. That, um, so, um, you know, I've, I've, I value the season a lot. And I think it can, I, think, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that in the Buddhist tradition, um, the Buddha and the monks, and you know, continue to this day, would take a three-month retreat in the rainy season. You know, it's kind of like the winter in South Asia. Of you know, it's not a time for you know being so out there in the world and spreading ourselves out. It's it's a time for warm soups and you know. And, and, and staying in one place and sort of collecting ourselves and um, uh, centering ourselves, gathering ourselves. So this is like samadhi. This is the stillness. And then, and then we see what, how, does that, how does that inform our life? How does that inform the, the clutter of soup pots and books and you know, how do we bring this, this vast, calm um, mind of samadhi into, into our life and, and allow it to teach us? Um, so um, I hope we will enjoy this season of, of, of winter, of darkness, of rest, um, and... Um, not be not be in too much of a rush to get through this to get to that you know that will come soon enough but to really savor this and and allow it to um, allow it to to speak to us to teach us what it has to teach us and um, so so thank you very much and we have a little bit of time if anyone to comment or question, um, love to hear. How are you doing in this this season of uh, winter? As we begin to celebrate, you know, the c- celebrate the return of the light, but you know, we're still we're still sort of in in this in this dark. Yes. I had the opportunity to go to um, to spend a little bit of time in Scandinavia, and in I was in <coughs> many years ago, maybe fifteen years ago. I was in Sweden over New Year's. And it, 
the it's so um, the darkness was so moving, you know. It was like there was just a little bit of daylight. You know, the day would remember maybe it would be a few hours a day uh, of daylight, and it would so it start to get dark at you know one p.m. or something. And and what they did in Stockholm is they would have candles out on the sidewalks in front of the restaurants and the shops, and it just created this wonderful mood. You know, and it was so cold. You know, I mean, I had three pairs of socks and still I'd walk outside and my toes would start burning with cold, right? But you go inside and have some cider and then have saunas and all these things. But but just that, I just loved that um, uh, you really felt like this is, this is a very particular season. And it, it just, it, it it just, at least for me, it just created a certain kind of internal mood. Um, and, um, and, and I think that there's, in, in a lot of the Scandinavian cultures, there's, in the winter season, there's more of an emphasis on like connecting and, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, this kind of quiet connection with others and just being in this kind of cozy, if it's so cold, you know, where you're going to go, you know, you just stay in and with the candles and, um, okay, so. Uh, after you opened it up to questions, I decided to turn on my cell phone. It turns out the phrase "afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted" was originally considered to be the job of newspaper reporters. Okay. Ah. Then the then Christian clergy took it from journalism, <laughs> so it's not in fact uh, Christian in origin. So. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's. Yeah, I think maybe one of the things that journalists and clergy have in common is a commitment to truth in some way. So, um, you know, ideally. So. You used to. Right, right. I would be interested in hearing you explore that um the idea the the concept that um the artist when you asked did not see a model because um and then you can kind of say oh that's a very zen idea but it seems very deep to me in that uh objects have no inherent existence, and it um, and it strikes me that the artist really appreciated that that uh, there was just energy, or there was just space, or there was just emptiness, or there is something shining forth from that um, from that. Uh, experience of the model, but 
the model wasn't really there. Yeah. No. Yeah. I. That's. 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 Um, and I think our teacher, or our teacher, you know, Hoshi Sensei, he. I don't think he's so used to putting into words something that he, he takes for second nature in a way that when he shifts into this mode, he's he's letting go of concepts in a way, and so that that there's a model there is a concept, you know, and um, and so so he's he's attuned to. Um, uh, you know, um, maybe a, a more elemental truth, a more an elemental way of seeing that he's able to sort of put down the, the mind of concepts and and something more fresh and vivid and alive and dynamic, you know, comes forth. And, um, you know, one of the one of the things I learned from that experience is that there are many ways, there are many doorways into that truth, you know, and meditation for, you know, kind of meditation we do is, 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 is one way. And I think it's, it's a, it's a beautiful way, but, um, you know, this is available for anyone, you know, if we, if, you know, if we, if we, um, find a way in, find a way to engage uh, directly um, with experience. So, um, but yeah, I think exactly, you're, right, you're pointing to emptiness, pointing to, um, but it's not emptiness, which means he doesn't say there's nothing there. You know, he says there's no model, but he's he's experiencing something, you know, so, um we say form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Um, uh, and artists are work in the world of form. But to be able to go between that and form and emptiness and, um, you know, maybe you could say the monk is in the world of emptiness, you know, or, or, or their orientation is towards the world of emptiness and the artist is towards the world of, fo- of form. But you need both. You know, they support each other. Um. Uh, I think the essence of what you're saying is that having that ability that the artist has in this case uh, yeah. um, to be able to shift away from the judgmental mind to a uh, to a way of seeing that just appreciates the beauty in the form or in the details and the shadows and seeing the whole picture because um, normally when we you know that we have that mind that uh, kicks in when we see people and and there's a habitual way of of viewing people and and so I think that that kind of training which we can do as an artist or just um, in say going to a museum and practicing that that way of seeing that it can um, move us out of that place of judgment yeah beautiful yeah I th- thank you 
one of the things we sometimes discover is that that mind that judges, that has a constant commentary, that has all these ideas and concepts, what's well, useful, of course, we need to, we need to have that in life, um, is, a, is a big source of suffering. It can be a big source of suffering. So any way that we learn to sort of be able to sh- turn that on and off or shift in and out something um, is very, very helpful because we, you know, um, Sometimes it's useful and helpful, and sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes the situation is not improved by my um, judgments and commentary. And actually, it's, it's, it's better to be um, present and open and available. And um, so, yeah. Um, so I'll, I don't know if I'll say this right, but um, so the tree, I have this experience a lot lately where um, yeah, I don't care for a lot of the things that I used to care about, and especially in worldly interactions with others, a lot of times it just seems noisy. Um, a lot of the talk is gossipy and complaining about this or that and just seems very pointless to me and um, uninteresting. And sometimes I can go into the judging mind about that, but a lot of times it can just be, wow, I don't care for this that much. And, um, and I almost feel a little bit monkish, like like I don't quite fit in there, and yet to hang out with People like that say form is emptiness. <laughs> it's like that's too much. I'm not there yet, you know. So it's like um, it's kind of intimidating. So I don't know. It's like it's like a lost place, and in some ways, it feels uh, it feels sad, mm. and mm. like 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 I don't I don't know where to go. You know. Obviously, mm. I come here and sit, and that's wonderful. But um, yeah, I don't know if yeah. that made any sense. Yeah. Hopefully, it did. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. One one of the um, words that came to me when you were speaking is this um, um, word that's translated as a disenchantment, and this is one of the you know one of the stages, the classical stages of the unfolding of Dharma practice. That there can come to be a time when we notice that we are disenchanted with the things that had previously maybe enchanted us. You know, like we, um, the th- you know, the, the orientation of our life is beginning to shift in some way. And the things that used to be, I used to be fix, fixated on or thought would bring me pleasure or happiness, they're not so, they don't have such a pull anymore. And actually, it's almost like a little bit of, um, you know, we see it in a new light, and it's not. So when you're talking about, you know, whether it's gossip or you know certain things that, you know, don't they're not quite a fit anymore. Um, that, you know, it, I think disenchantment is is one of the uh, maybe we could say it's the necessary phases that we go through because we 
as we're cha- as we change and are changing, um, uh, we start to see things more clearly, and we see them as they are. And uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, um, th- we see, you know we we see old things in a new light. Um, and it can be a time of loss, actually. It can be a time of sadness. It can be a, um, uh, you know, because we're, in a way, we, we're, it can almost be a grieving for a kind of life that we had or thought we had or thought we wanted or something. And, um, but something something, maybe we could say something is dying, and s- but something also is being born, you know, and, and, and that's this sort of, you know, maybe this, this winter seed, this fallow, you know, where we're, we see, we see the, the barrenness, we see the sort of the dampness and the, and the lack of sun and the, um, and there can be sadness with that. But um, it's also this necessary phase for something to blossom, for something to to grow. Um, so, I think sometimes disenchantment is something negative. I mean, painful. But I think sometimes when you get disenchanted with something, you can then learn to enjoy it in a more authentic and real way um, so that it's not, it's something that brings you joy, but it doesn't control you anymore. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. I think, yeah. I often have that feeling also um, that people are complaining, people are involved in details that don't really uh, uh, seem so important. But I often think about what the Dalai Lama said, that there are Buddhas in the world, which I take seriously. and And then when I experience people who I have judgments about or um, see some surface uh, delusion or whatever that they're involved in that I judge as that. I think about their uh, Buddha nature, that everyone has Buddha nature and it is shining forth from them. And so there is always something to appreciate. So I, I like that idea of uh, the um, seeing something positive that's there also. There was a, thank you, Randy. The, yeah, there's a, maybe this is a good place to end, but there's this story that I always think about when I think about calmness, tranquility. There was a, uh, uh, Many of you probably know Ed Brown or who Ed Brown is. He's a teacher. He's a Zen teacher in our wider scene. And I think this is a... My memory is that he tells the story of going to see... So he he was in charge of the kitchen at the monastery. And 
um, you know, this is in the late 60s when they just started Tassajara and, and people were going into the, you know, in a, in, a, in a monastery you have certain meal times, right? You know, you're supposed to eat at the meal time and you're served and it's kind of this formal thing. But people were just going into the kitchen all night long kind of raiding the, the fridge and the pantry and, and um, and so there was a whole conversation with his teacher and um, and anyway, they, I think they they ended up putting uh, you know putting a lock on the door or something like that. But but in the in the in the course of the conversation, and, um, Ed was upset about you know having a conflict with a particular person, and the teacher Suzuki Roshi said, "To see virtue, in order to see virtue, um, we need to have a calm mind." You know. You know, so having a conflict with someone who's breaking the rules and doing something, he's saying to see the virtue in that person. Okay, it's easy to see the sort of negative thing that person, but how can we see the virtue in that person? Well, it when when we become calm, when we can um, bring to stillness some of the movement of our own mind then we can open to the Buddha in each, in each person. And it doesn't mean we don't also see the problems and the, the, the difficulty and the negative thing, but through that calmness of mind, um, we become more perceptive and more open. Um, so, anyway. So I wish for all of us to enjoy this um, season of winter and uh, as we, um, you know, remember that um, the light will return also, you know, and that's the great, you know, the great gift of this rhythm to be, to be sort of, I think we're so affected by the rhythms of things that we, we don't, we're, often we forget that, you know, we're part of nature. You know, we're not separate. So, um, and to be, um, the, the more sort of calmness and more um, openness we have we'll be able to perceive as the first branch tips brush at our window, softly, calmly, immensity taps at our life. So, thank you.